Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, So whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well... What better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we're discussing brilliant real estate investing tactics with David Green. David Green is a former police officer and a co-host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. A nationally recognized authority on real estate, David has been on CNN, Forbes, and HGTV several times. He is the author of best-selling books like Long Distance Real Estate Investing and Sell Your Home for Top Dollar. And he also runs the site greenincome.com. Joel, are you seeing a common thread here with uh, what he likes to spend his time on? Uh, Real estate, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's obvious that David is passionate about helping others build wealth, specifically through real estate. I hear he also sleeps every now and then. So David, man, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, guys. This is going to be fun. Awesome. Well, yeah, David, I hope you do sleep every once in a while. It's tough to, <laughs> to cram all those things right into, into one day, every day, right? To do the podcast, to actually be a real estate investor at the same time, to write books, to make all these appearances. We appreciate you taking the time here. And by the way, David, every week on the show, Matt and I, we drink a beer while we're talking about money. Today on the show, we're drinking a beer called The Explorer by Archetype Brewing. Brad and Corinna sent this one our way to feature on the show today. And so we want to ask you... Uh, David, while you're prioritizing saving and investing for the future, particularly in real estate, what are you splurging on in the here and now that gets you excited? 
You know, I don't necessarily look at things as splurging as much as I used to. When I was in a W-2 job, like when I was a cop, you were on some kind of a fixed income. So it literally by definition, it was a splurge if you bought something you didn't need. But when I became an entrepreneur, so I also sell houses now and I'm starting a, a loan company and I have a, a private mastermind where I teach people success principles so they can become millionaires. So I have different streams of income coming in and it doesn't feel like a splurge when you spend money anymore because I, I don't have a limited no, like amount of money I can make. It's unlimited. It just depends on what I go do. So there's probably areas of my life I'd say I'm more undisciplined when it comes to spending money. Like I eat out <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I just, I would, I would save a lot of money if I like actually had, so, I could literally pay a chef to shop for me and cook food and it would be cheaper <laughs> than just going out to eat because I'm always like on the go. Uh, that's an area of my life where I could use more discipline. That's probably the biggest one. I also, uh, I, I go to any education event that I want. I don't even question it. If they're going to teach me something that's going to make me better, I just go. And and that can be a splurge, you know, like I don't really look at it too closely. But again, when you're in a position where you, you have some influence in your entrepreneur, it's you're going to make money back on all that stuff. It ends up being an investment. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's more an investment than it is actually you wasting money, right? Quick question though. You're talking about how you could actually pay a chef. So would you actually... Appreciate? Would you enjoy having home cooked meals versus the convenience of being able to go wherever you actually wanted to go and just you know getting whatever meal? I think you know the answer to that. That's why you asked that question, and it's <laughs> yeah. it's no because if I would have, I would just have that chef already, right? Like I know I should have one; it would be much better for me. The very reason I don't have one is because I wouldn't appreciate it. Otherwise, I would have just you know done that instead. It's a good question, though. I like it. Nice, man. All right. So before we get into real estate, we've got a lot of questions about real estate for you. We, we want to hear a little bit more kind of about your background though. And David, after doing some digging on you, you made some deliberate choices regarding how you went to college and how you handled your money when you were younger that a lot of people could learn a good bit from. And like you said, when you were a police officer, you were living on a pretty small income. Now that's changed. But like, tell us kind of what deliberate steps you made in those college days that helped set you up for the success that you, you've been able to find now. That's so cool you asked me that because I never get to talk about this. Everybody just wants to know, how do I buy a house? But this stuff is much, much better looking at how the foundation got laid for how I got here. So when I was in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a lot of anxiety about that. I'm not a kind of person who doesn't like when there's not a plan. I'm the kind of person that likes when I have a plan and I just go at it with a ferocious intensity until I get through it. I'm very competitive. So I like to race. But when you don't know what you're doing and you don't know where your racetrack is, it's horrible. You can imagine. So I had a lot of anxiety in college. And the one thing that I could control was working uh, the job I had while I was in college, which was a waiter in a restaurant, while trying to figure out what career am I going to get into. I was trying a bunch of different stuff. So I kind of honestly value the money I made as a waiter above the education I was getting in college because I didn't know what that education was actually going to turn into. I was a business major, then I was a psychology major, then I was a criminal justice minor. It's kind of all over the place. So what I would do is I would just work in restaurants and I would find the best restaurants that I could get, the most expensive one that was the toughest to learn, hardest menu. I had to learn all about fine wines and pairing meats. And If you could pair a, a nice beer with a steak, I'd be more interested in that. But <laughs> oh, We got a little bit of blue collar thing going on here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so because I worked in these nice restaurants and I outworked everybody, I actually made pretty good money while I was in college. So I would show up and I would be the first one there and I'd be the last one to leave. And I was as efficient of a waiter as I could possibly be. I was greedy. I wanted as many tables as I could get. 
get. I wanted to give the best service I could get. When all the other waiters were like, okay, I've done enough of this. I just want to go home, which in, let's be honest, in the restaurant world, there's a lot of partying, drinking, and coke going on. And like 8.30 hits, 9 o'clock hits, the first client they have or customer that irritates them is their excuse to quit. That's just human nature. Most people in life are looking for an opportunity to quit. And honestly, I would give it to them. <laughs> I would be like, hey, you want me to close for you tonight? No, no, no. It's okay. I got it. I need the money because they're going to get a couple more tables. And then you'd see them frustrated. Hey, you sure you don't want me to close? Uh, I'm thinking about it. I'll let you know. <laughs> oh, man. Like 20 minutes later, you'd see the kitchen messed up one of their steaks or some one tiny thing went wrong. And hey, do you want to close? Yeah, man, just take it. I don't want to deal with this BS. And boom. I'm now the closer. I get another four or five tables. I'm probably making 30 to 50 bucks an average on each of those tables, right? I double my money in that one move because I would stay late. And I'd do that four or five times a week. And I live it at my my parents' house. I ate their food. I didn't really have any expenses other than a gym membership and a cell phone bill. So I was saving a lot of money. Working a job anybody else could get. I wasn't doing anything different than other people. I just did it differently. So it took me about five years to graduate because I changed my major. So I had a year of kind of wasted time. And in those five years, the last year I didn't work because I had a reconstructive ankle surgery. I broke my ankle playing basketball. So out of those four years, I saved $95,000 and I had paid my car wow. off cash, which was a pretty nice car. And I paid off my, my, my debt. Uh, for for school, so I came out of that basically like with a, a you know a loaded gun right when the market tanked, which was the perfect time to have some capital and and no expenses. So I've got to follow up on that. Basically, what you were saying about being willing to basically when your coworkers wanted to quit, you were there to pick up the slack. In real estate, it's one of the only places where there are people out there ready to quit, and you can kind of take that asset off of them at a, at a heavy discount. It seems to me that that time of being a waiter actually trains you for being able to spot deals. Do you, do you agree with that? 100%. It also helped me with my real estate agent business where I sell houses for clients. I'm the top producing realtor in my area. So many agents suck. They just, they don't, you know, like take their job seriously. They don't commit to their clients. And I picked up so many clients that already had an agent and they just weren't happy with them. You know, like it's that, it's a terrible analogy, but it's that whole like the, the guy's not very good to his girlfriend. And as soon as she finds a guy that treats her better, like, boom, she's gone. You know, in this mm -hmm. industry, they are everywhere. And all you got to say is like, hey, are you tired of your waiter? I, I, I can take care of you over here. <laughs> and boom, they're at your table. And that's your that's your tip now. So, yeah, like, I, I, like your listeners, I can almost guarantee every one of them has opportunity floating around their heads and they don't see it because they haven't been trained to look for it. So obviously that that explains how you you know you were able to save up so much cash. Like, how did you actually get started investing in real estate uh, around that time? It was an accident, man. I had a buddy at church that was moving away to go to Bible college, and he was telling me how he had just put a deposit on a house he was going to buy. He got accepted into Bible college, so he took off, and and I just heard him saying he was going to lose his deposit, and I was like, oh shoot, man! Like, well, let me go take a look at it. If I can buy it, maybe you'll get your money. It was that. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how real estate worked. I did not want to be an investor. I didn't know that what real estate investing was. I just didn't want my buddy to lose his money. And uh, I knew at some point I would need a house. So I was like, well, I'll just buy it and rent it out. And when I have a family, I'll have a house. That's as far as it went. And then I ended up buying that house. And that was the first one. So were you, were you still living with your folks at that point, just banking everything? Yeah, man. And I bought like probably 10 houses living with other people before I ever bought a house <laughs> to live in. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Dude, that's cool. Yeah. And I love how 
it can be inauspicious in the beginnings, but that first one, you kind of get the bug, you get excited and you're like, wait a second, this real estate thing has legs and this could be a big potential in the long run. So obviously it's been that for you, but for folks that are listening, David, and they haven't been bitten by that real estate bug, tell them what makes you love real estate investing. Why is it such a great way to build wealth? I love any time that I can do a lot of work up front and then enjoy it for a long time without having to do more work. So I've always been that way. Like if I got to work really hard to get a good job, but once I get that job, I can just coast. I'd be very interested in that. You know, <laughs> the, the law enforcement career, they kick your ASS in that academy. The first couple of years, you are terrified every day of making a mistake or getting fired or someone getting hurt. But once you learn it, oh, it's like the coolest job ever. I've just always been drawn to that type of thing. And I've always been, I don't like the idea of having to work really hard, get a, get a big win, and then have to go back and work again. And real estate investing is like the best method I've ever seen for doing a lot of work, getting a victory, doing hardly anything, and money and wealth coming back to you with very, very, very minimal effort on your behalf. In fact, the only things that do take effort on your behalf can be hired out and paid for with money from that asset. Like you don't have to do anything. So I think when I started to see that part of it is when I was like, oh, this is not something that's going to suck. I could just work hard to get the deal. You know, I work really hard to save 50 grand and then I buy a house and then I'm done. It just keeps paying me every single month. And when you look at like, you guys know, like 30 years ago, what your parents paid for their first homes. Oh my gosh. When I hear, I remember my parents when they lived in Portland, Oregon, I think they bought their first house for like 38,000 or something like that. It was probably <laughs> worth 400,000 at, at the latest value. Yeah. And what do you think they put down on that $38,000 house? Like 10%? Yeah, probably something like that. So they would have turned four grand into 400 grand plus the cash flow they would have had over that 30 years as well. Right. Right. Like, and their, and their tenants would have paid that all off for them. That's it. Like it's it's freaking I don't even know the word to describe how magical it is. It's like not uh, fair for Yeah, <laughs> it's know. ridiculous how easy it is to make money in real estate if you play it for the long game. Everyone that loses money is the ones that are trying to get in and get out really quick. That's the problem yeah. they all make. But I mean, can you, if you, what if your parents had just bought a, another house every year for 30 years and they are all $4,000 houses or $4,000 down payments that turned into 400. That's an insane amount of wealth that you don't have to be very intelligent to accumulate. Well, if my parents had done that, I'd be probably living on a private island or something like that. It'd be kind of sweet. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, I'd be interviewing you. <laughs> how, did you how did you get... What did you do a, a, such a good job as to get parents like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I won the birth lottery. Well, David, I mean, it sounds like you've made some like some great decisions, right? Like you've, And you came across some great deals. When you were first getting started in real estate, uh, like what was one of the, like the hardest or maybe one of the worst deals where you learned uh, just a really important lesson that has stuck with you? You know, I've been so blessed in my career. I've really never lost money on a deal. When I got started, it was the best market to ever be in. So a lot of the mistakes you make when you're new were very forgiving for me because the market just kept going up and up and up. The, big, the biggest mistakes I made, to be honest with you, is I was not aggressive enough. There was no reason for me to not buy more houses. I just I didn't grasp quickly enough how much risk I could take and still be fine as a single guy making tons of money with zero mm. bills. I should have been moving really fast. That was the biggest mistake. The only other time I've ever lost money on a deal was a house. I bought like six houses at a time and I forgot about one of them. My real estate agent business was taken <laughs> off. I had like eight <laughs> clients. I had six houses in contract. My assistant was brand new. Every day was just chaos. And I literally forgot about one of the homes. 
And uh, when it came time to close escrow, I realized I hadn't done any of the inspections. I hadn't done a dang thing. And um, <laughs> oh I couldn't gosh. get my deposit back. So I lost $5,000 because I just, the house ended up being in such bad shape, I couldn't buy it. But even then, like I made so much more money off those other five houses that I bought and all the houses I sold that I can't even be mad that I lost five grand. It'd be easy to focus on C. That's why you shouldn't do it. You could lose money. But how much money did real estate make me during that same time frame? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, I feel like there are all sorts just to, you know, Matt and I, we're mom and pop real estate investors. We've got basically, you know, four or five houses that, that we're running out. And there are all these little things that I could have pointed to along the way as reasons to stop places that would, it would have been easy to quit. But basically th- these houses have been so instrumental in building our wealth and helping, you know, our families live the kind of life we want to live that I'm, I'm glad we didn't, you know, I'm really glad we didn't. By the way, David, you are totally the king of analogies. Man, I, I've, ne- I've never heard anyone be able to put together an analogy on the spot better than you. So, and you especially do this, by the way, on on the Bigger Pockets podcast, which you co-host. So, do you have any favorite analogies, favorite go-to analogies that you tend to use when you're talking about buying or selling or investing in real estate? Yeah, but it's offensive. <laughs> it's not dirty at all. It just isn't very tasteful. That's all that it is. So I tell my clients when, when they're looking to buy a house, and this would absolutely apply to real estate investors as well, that what most people do in life is they all chase after the same thing. Okay. Everybody is going after the same four houses because they have the best pictures and they look the best. And they're in the best part of town and we expect the best. And the dating world and the real estate world are so closely related, right? Like mm-hmm. I just see there's so many parallels between them and the emotions that you feel when you're looking for someone to date or dating someone versus when you're looking for a house or in the escrow process. And what I tell my clients is like, look, you're going to see houses that look amazing and get you all excited and your heart's going to be pounding and you're going to think I'll do anything to get it. And it's the same way that these suckers are when they see a hot girl at the bar with fake everything and every one of them chases the same girl. They're all buying her drinks and trying to toss game at her and looking the best that they can and bragging and just making a fool out of themselves because they all want that same girl, right? Does that girl ever respect those guys? No, she doesn't care. She's just waiting for the guy that's better than you. And like, that's who she's going to, you know, give her number to or whatever. She just enjoyed the free drinks. That's exactly it. Like you just gave, you just gave all your power to someone you're never going to get something from. And it's, it's not wise, but but it's what we do as people. And I just warn them, you're going to want to do the same thing, buying a house. You're going to look for the one that's move in ready and looks great. Best part of town, best school districts, best everything. And so are the other 50 people who are buying a house and it's going to get overbid by so much. You're never going to get it. And then you're going to get heartbroken. And then you're going to ask yourself, why wasn't I enough? Why didn't she like me? I'm not good. And your confidence (laughs) is going to get shot. And that happens two or three more times and you you get out of the game completely. We're not looking for that girl. We're looking for the girl sitting in the back with her hair up, no makeup on, big, fr- big frumpy sweater, glasses, like maybe some baby spit up on her or something that uh, makes zero effort to look good at all, reading a book. But with a makeover, that girl would be the perfect wife. That's what you look for in a deal, right? Really good bones, really good area, terrible looking house. That's, that's what I'm going for. So to me, like that's the strongest analogy because we can understand the emotions behind it. If you've ever been in the situation where you chase the wrong girl or you chase the right girl and you're so glad that you did, like it sticks with you really hard. And, and analogies are helpful because they help us make an emotional connection with something we understand <laughs> over a topic that we didn't. Would you say the, uh, the similar analogy, I guess, to your female clients, right? I guess the, the analogy swings both ways. Don't go ways. for the John Hamm type. Instead, look for the... <laughs> I don't know. I John Hamm looks is pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's nice. You don't want him. 
That's why I said that it's not tasteful because it doesn't <laughs> like it, it does talk about like an ugly side of human nature. And I don't think women relate as much to the chase as much as a guy does. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I might use that example when I'm going to sell their house, right? Like we want to get our house to look like the hot girl at the bar and everyone's going to chase it. We're going to get over asking price type of a deal. So no, I probably wouldn't use that example with them. But regardless, like the part you have to realize is the stuff that makes you run away from a deal smells bad. It's gross. It needs a lot of work, blah, blah, blah. That is what we, where the money is. You need to be looking for the stuff other people don't want. That's the seller that's like motivated and even desperate at times and needs to sell that property. And the more work that you are willing to put into that property yourself, the more equity you're going to build. And if you, if you pick the right person to date and they're not a person who's trying really hard to get attention, but you, you pour into that person, you love that person, you build that person up, they're going to love you back so much more when it's over if they're a good deal. you know. And, so, and, and real estate is very similar. All right. Well, dude, well, that I feel like you're getting into some stuff that I can't wait to talk with you about, in particular about buying a house. And there's one analogy that you and your co-host Brandon have come up with about buying homes. It's called the Burr strategy. And we're going to get into that right after the break. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. 
Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. Let's talk now about buying homes. This is obviously what you spend a lot of your time doing, right? It's just all about the buy. Like That's where the deals happen. And Joel, he hinted at the Burr strategy. Can you explain what that funny acronym is all about? Yeah. So I actually just wrote a book on this topic. It came out about three and a half months ago. I bet when we gave you guys the bio for me, it, it hadn't come out yet. And it's the best-selling real estate book on Amazon right now. That book is is crushing it. It's I'm nice, so dude. Congrats. Happy. Congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. And in the business category, I am right in between Rich Dad, Poor Dad and the four-hour work week as far as sales go. So I've heard of those I mean, books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good. So who knows how long I'll stay there. But uh, the acronym stands for Buy, Rehab, Rent, Refinance, Repeat. All right. And the book basically spells out the order in which you buy a property in order to invest in real estate the best way that you possibly can. But most people do, and this is what I did most of my career, was we go, we buy a house with a big down payment, we put money into fixing it up, and then when it's done, we rent it out. And you calculate your ROI based on how much money you had to put in the deal. But the problem with that is that all your money goes. It's very difficult to save 30, 40, 50 grand to go buy a property. And then you're going to have to dump even more money in on the rehab. So what you do is you try to buy the house that has the least amount of rehab work needed. So you put the least amount of money into it. But that's usually the worst deal. And the entire method steers you towards buying the wrong property or dating the wrong person, right? The Burr method is different. You look for the ugliest, nastiest, grossest house you can get your hands on. Then you spend as, as much money as you have to to make it worth as much as you can. You don't even worry about what the rehab is in terms of numbers. You just worry about the return you're going to get on the work you do. Then you rent it out and, and then it's worth a bunch more money. When it's worth a bunch more money, you refinance it based on its improved value and get way more capital back. In fact, I usually get 100% of my capital back after I'm done. And I use that capital to go buy the next house. So you never run out of money. You also are forced to buy better deals. You also add equity in every single deal that you buy. And you like supercharge how quickly you can build a portfolio without increasing your risk. And, and then you're basically also, at the same time, recouping all of your equity in the Burr method. You are, you're cash flowing every month on those properties, right? Oh yeah, I wouldn't buy it if I didn't cash flow. Like so, my my standards are pretty much the same as what I would expect if I put a house with a down payment on it. But rather than buying equity, which is I put a bunch of money into the property and now I have some equity, 
I'm building equity, I'm creating equity through paying under market value and then adding value through a rehab. So I'm getting the same equity either way, but I'm not using my capital to create it. So I can use that capital to go buy the next deal. You still need it to cash flow. You still need it to be in a good area. You don't change your standard at all regarding uh, what you expect from that property when you're done. You just change the order in which you're buying it to make it more efficient. Nice. Well, David, what you're talking about here essentially is forced appreciation, right? Yep. That seems to be one of the most consistent ways to make money in real estate. You're talking about buying ugly homes. That's one of the ways you're able to sort of force that appreciation. What would you say are your biggest tips for you know finding that deal, for forcing that appreciation in a home that most investors don't even consider? So the first tip would be look for the, the girl that no one else is trying to date. Right, like don't look for the house that looks as good as it possibly can. Look for that. You're looking for problems in real estate, and the the bigger problem and the more problems you can solve, the more money you can make. So, what I do is I tell agents, send me the nastiest stuff. Send me the thing that's been on the market for way too long. Send me the house that the minute you get that feeling, I don't want this listing. Right? I need you to think of me every time you get that sick feeling in your stomach. Associate David <laughs> Green with I'm gonna puke. Right? When you get yeah, when you get nauseous, <laughs> think of me. 100%. Not a great strategy for dating, but it works really good in real estate, right? So so I'm looking for top producing agents or wholesalers or everyone who's like, hey, when you get a house that you know, oh God, no one's going to want this, think of me and send it to me. That's what I, I definitely want. Um, so that's the first thing that you look for with the deal. Then you also have to think about like starting with the end in mind. So it doesn't matter. You don't want to analyze a deal that isn't going to cash flow in the first place. You just would never buy it. So I look for areas. So like what I told you guys before is how I find the actual property. But the area that I'm looking in is determined by like the 1% rule. So I look for properties that are going to rent every month for about 1% of how much I put into the deal. If it's like, I don't do this in California. We cannot cash flow in California. You're not doing this in San Francisco? No, believe it or not, I'm not. It, the only burr in San Francisco is cold from the fog. It's definitely not something that you do with, with houses. So I'm in the South and I'm in the Midwest. I'm in areas where I'm more likely to find a cash flowing property. So you pick your area. I wrote about that in my book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing. You build your team. And then once you have the team, the instructions you give them are, I want these nasty properties. And then once you get it, you have other people do due diligence, like go check out the property, give you estimates on the rehab, give you a timeline it's going to be, check out what your rent's going to be, do all your normal due diligence. But after the house has been fixed up and it's a nice, beautiful jewel, that's when you go to the bank and you say, okay, I want a loan on this, not in the beginning. Well, what are there ever any deal breakers? Because it sounds it sounds like there might not be any. It sounds like you would buy anything. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> is there ever anything where you're like, man, I'm not touching that with a ten foot pole? That location is the only deal breaker for me. So, I have two two philosophies when it comes to this. The first is the location is literally the only part of an asset that you can't change or fix. I mean, you. If you built, if you bought up the entire neighborhood, maybe, but that just wouldn't be an efficient use of capital. When you're having, like, you know, would you have buy a house with termites? Would you buy a house foundation issues? What about electrical issues? What I've seen from you know counseling and teaching other investors is that those hot button topics cause fear. They cause an emotion that is very negative that makes you want to withdraw. That doesn't help you. So what I've learned to do is take all of those things that you just mentioned, like would you not buy a house because of whatever, and just convert it into a dollar. A dollar is a number. How much money would it cost to fix said thing? And once I've got that, I plug that in a spreadsheet and I see if it makes sense. So if it's going to be $10,000 to fix this problem and $10,000 to fix that problem, just because one of them says electrical hazard and the other one says dry rot doesn't make one any worse than the other. 
I don't care if it has foundation problems. Can it be fixed? What would it cost to fix it? Oh, it can't be mm-hmm. fixed. What would it cost to tear down the house and rebuild a new house? Right. If it has such a bad foundation problem, maybe the seller can't sell it to anybody and he'll have to sell it to me for basically the price of the land or less. You know, that's how I look at every single thing that could possibly come up is I turn it into a number and I say, what would I have to do to make the deal work? And then that's what I offer the seller. Man, essentially, you're just removing that emotion. I mean, obviously, it sounds like plugging the numbers into the spreadsheet. That, that's one way that you can just literally translate fear into dollar amounts. Do you have any other tips sort of along the, you know, that, that train of thought? Like how do you remove... Like how else can you remove emotions from a deal like that other than just looking at the numbers? Uh, the first one is to turn it into a number because a number won't you know, affect you emotionally. That's the biggest piece of advice. So I've heard people say, what about lead-based paint? I don't care. What would it cost to take it out? Right. So what you need is someone who knows the answer to that question. You get a contractor on your team who's really good and you can trust and all of a sudden you don't have fear anymore. That's a big piece, right? Like when I'm going to buy a car and it's a used car, I feel a lot of apprehension. There's uncertainty. There's anxiety. I don't know what to expect. But if I have a super good mechanic that looks over the car and says, you're good to go, all of a sudden that fear goes away. So rather than using fear as an excuse to not take action, fear is is an indication. It's a signal that you are unprepared. So you go find the thing that you need to make that fear go away. That's, that's probably the, the biggest piece that I would say. The rest of it would be quit thinking that you got to figure everything out because there's some fear involved with that too. And at, at the very minimum, if not fear, there's some apprehension or just irritation at having to do all this work. So all the time I hear people say, oh, you got to learn this and you got to learn that. And they're reading all these books on all these different topics, property management, construction, you know, like understanding the area, the overall economy. I don't do any of that stuff. I mean, I learned it along (laughs) the way, but I don't need to be the expert. I don't know crap about property management. I just know what my property managers have told me are the three biggest things that make it work or don't make it work. And I make sure that I incorporate that into my deal. I let them worry about that. That's their thing. I don't need to understand the laws behind 30-day notices and and three-day notices and, and all that stuff. That's what they do. So when I go into a new endeavor, I'm going into it knowing there's certain things I'm just not going to deal with. Somebody else is going to have to deal with that. So I don't have a lot of the fear and apprehension other people have who think that they have to do it all on their own. Because the re- reality is if I, David did it all on his own, he'd be worse than if he just let other people do it who are better. Mm, yeah, that's a good point, man. By the way, since many of us only purchase a few homes at most over the course of our lives, we're really not terribly effective at the negotiating table. And I realized too that negotiating on an investment property or a potential investment property, it's typically different than when we're buying a single family home for us to live in. So like, what sort of tips do you have and what have you learned in all of these essentially negotiations when you've been purchasing investment properties? The biggest mistake people make with negotiating is I'm going to use a poker analogy, okay? What they do is they say, how do I get the seller to to take my deal, to take what I want? And it's the same as saying, how do I win with this pair of fours? Poker players don't think that way. They don't think, how do I win with the pair of fours? They think, would I win with this pair of fours? What would I have to have to win? And if it looks like they're not going to win, then they get out of the deal. They get out of the pot. They don't keep on trying to force it, Right. That's what I think most real estate investors need to understand. If a seller is unreasonable and doesn't understand that they have to sell the property, you're not going to make them see, right? Like you're literally trying to get a deal and they know it. You need to look for the person where you have the better hand, where the money that you're bringing and the, and the, the chance you have to fix a problem is the bigger hand compared to what they're holding. 
And that's what you should pursue. And that's what I see the biggest mistake people make negotiating is they'll say, hey, this guy's got a property. It's worth 110. He wants 140. What can I do to get him to, to take my offer of 110? And I would just say, don't. Just like let that guy sit there and stew in his own juices of anxiety for the next six months or however long he can last. And when he comes back to you and says, I'll do it at 110, say, well, now I can only do 90. That's a much better way of doing it is like let the other person get motivated. When you have a motivated person, now there's actually some skill that your negotiation can can work with, right? That's where, okay, I got a good hand. I could win this pot. Now your poker skills are actually going to come into play. Don't try to win when you don't have a hand that, that can win. And that's going to be don't go into it with your ego thinking I got to beat this person, right? You don't want to have that like – traditional stereotypical Donald Trump type attitude where you want to win and you want to rub their nose in it because people will pay you back the, the first chance they get. When you're negotiating, you want to understand the other person's position as much as possible and then understand what is important to them. So to us, the price is almost the only thing we care about. How cheap can I get it? To them, they're probably selling it because they're under an emotion of a, a fear, of frustration, of anxiety. They're feeling something that they don't want to be feeling. Right. And they're not selling the house to you at the price you want because they don't want to feel like they got taken advantage of. They don't want to feel like they got had. They're almost 100% doing this off of emotions. So the good negotiator knows how to go in there and find out what's important to the other party and then give that person permission to uh, solve their own problem without feeling bad. So if you go in there and you just try to hammer them for the sake of hammering them, they may want to give you the deal, but now they're saying, well, I'm going to get rid of my emotion of frustration owning a property, but now I'm going to have the emotion of shame that I got, I, I lost on this deal and they're not going to do it. Find a way to make them feel good about giving you the house right? Mm. You can give them a sob story about how you're a struggling college student and this is the house that you need so that your girlfriend will finally marry you, right? <laughs> like now they've, oh, they're, they're doing a good thing for you. You've given them permission inside to take a worse deal for themselves to help you out. And I think that that's just what people have to understand is as human beings, we make decisions based on emotions. We do not really ever make decisions based on logic. But yet when we're negotiating, we're trying to figure out what logical steps can I take to get the other person to give me what I want. Life just doesn't work that way. That's awesome. Real quick, you, you mentioned, you know, we've touched on rehabbing. When you are looking at a property, how do you know where to draw the line and not over improve a property? Like I know for myself, this is a sort of a personal struggle, right? Like I have a house, uh, I want it to look nice. I want to have great renters in there who appreciate the property. Uh, how do you know basically yeah, where to, where to draw that line? That's a really good question. So the first thing you have to understand is the way that real estate is valued. So single family properties, which is what I assume we're talking about right now, are valued very simply. They just say, what's, this, what's the other houses around it? What did they sell for? And what's this one going to be worth? It's that simple, right? The, the problem is when people get into thinking like, if I spend 10000 on countertops, how much will that make my house worth more? And that doesn't work because the answer, no buyer says, oh, I only wanted to pay 400 grand, but I have to pay 410 because they have these countertops. People don't <laughs> think that way. What buyers think is, which house do I want? And then they find it and they say, how cheap can I get it? And if there's no one else that wants the house, they're going to write as, as low of an offer as they can get away with. And if there's a lot of people that want the house, they're going to write as low of an offer as they think they can without losing it. It's that simple. They're pure greed. So as a seller, you have to understand that's the mindset of the person buying your home. They're not looking at it from a mathematical thing that brings comfort like it does to you. You know, Well, if I spend this much money on this flooring, how much more would my house be worth? 
Who knows? It depends on how much more it makes somebody want it. And it depends on all the other houses around it and how much competition you have, right? And how many people are trying to move into that market and what did interest rates just do? You can't think that way. What you can do though is say, what are the other houses around mine selling for? Find the one that is closest to yours and then say, how much would I have to spend to make mine look like that? So if that house is only worth 10,000 more than yours is, it probably doesn't make sense to spend money to make yours look like that. If that house is worth $100,000 more than yours is, and you can spend less than $100,000, now it would make sense to make that move. And that's what people have to understand is, all right, what's the comp, the comparable that I'm looking for? How much would I have to spend to get to that? Then say, would it be worth it? If I can spend $30,000 for new flooring and a new kitchen, and I'll make my house look like that one that sold for $90,000 more, it's worth it. But if you if you already have the nicest house in the neighborhood or you're close to it, any money that you spend is almost worthless. It's just, it, you're, you can only bring your house up to the best house. You can't really go higher than that because the appraisers won't give it the value that you want. Yeah. And I think especially when we're talking about our own personal residences, that's where a lot of us make big mistakes. And we think that a single family home is just this great investment, but we tend to over-improve or we put things in that only we find appealing. And so we're not actually thinking about it as an investment. And so we end up spending more money, putting more money into a house than it is eventually worth, right? Yeah. And then like once you do that, you want to justify the money that you already spent because you have an ego. So you start telling your agent, well, they need to understand I spent this much money. I did this much stuff, <laughs> right? Like the but buyers they don't care. Don't, they don't care, right? <laughs> like why would they care? They don't need to understand crap. You need to understand you were you were foolish to spend that money. Let it go. <laughs> You've already lost it. Doesn't suck it. You can't fix it now. Well, David, we, you know, we're talking about buying here. Uh, we're going to talk some more with you about real estate. We're going to talk about investing in real estate long distance. We're going to get to that right after the break. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. 
Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. Spring cleaning is kind of an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we're back. We're talking with David Green, co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast. We're talking about real estate investing. Matt and I love talking about real estate investing. And David, we've been talking about the Burr strategy. It's super fascinating. But you also mentioned in the last segment that you wrote a book about long distance real estate investing. So why is it that you mostly invest in real estate that isn't anywhere near where you live? Because I have to. Where I live, the properties are so expensive that the rents can't keep up. And if you buy a property here, you will lose money every month. And I just didn't want to lose money. Where's here, by the way? I live in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Oh, so that was a good guess earlier. <laughs> yeah, I assumed you guys knew that. You did a great job there. <laughs> yeah, so that's like where I sell houses. Anybody that lives out there, if they want to buy or sell a house, they can let me know. But I do like meetups out here to teach people how to invest in different markets because you're not going to buy a rental property in this market. But I still believe in the power of real estate and that you should be buying it. So that book was about how to pick a market and really more how the systems that I built to be able to do it safely. So yeah, those systems, David, when you're looking at the different markets, right? Like that you're considering, like, do you just look at the numbers or are you looking at other pieces of news, right? Like, are you looking at different industries? Like I'm thinking about the HQ2 that was supposed to happen in New York, right? I can imagine a lot of folks were thinking, man, real estate is going to blow up. 
but then all of a sudden that dries up. Like, are you looking at those sort of external factors as well? Are you just looking at the numbers? What are you taking into account? You can look at the news. Like, let's say that you were paying attention five, six years ago when they announced that Tesla was going to be moving to Nevada. That's why Reno has just blown up incredible since since that news came out. That'd been a good ch- time to go by, but yeah. <laughs> that's still somewhat speculative. I don't do a ton of that. What I look at is where are the jobs moving to that are paying more. The number one metric I care about more than anything else. Like, let me ask you guys: if you think about the last five years or so, which cities in the country have blown up the most? Nashville. That's that's the first good. one that comes to my mind. In what Atlanta. Else? I mean, we're here in Atlanta and I, f- I mean, there, there's been some incredible growth here in our city. Okay. Keep going. I think a lot of the, the South Southern cities, like the there's, there's so much Austin, Texas. Yeah. And it's kind of these mid tier, mid sized cities that are really growing the most. So it's true that in general, that there's growth in those areas. But if you look at what's exploding, it's been San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Austin, you guys mentioned. West Coast cities, huh? Uh, well, not just West Coast cities like Madison, Wisconsin has had some rapid growth. I'm trying to think of anywhere else that I can think of on the East Coast where in general, though, the, what you're seeing is that areas where tech companies are moving to are having incredible rises right now. And it's not because of tech. It's because that tech brings high wages. When people make a lot more, they can pay a lot more for a house. And as long as there's a limited supply, housing prices will go up. Like if a tech company moved to Kansas, it probably wouldn't matter because they could build so many houses there, they'd never go up. Yeah. <laughs> so in general, that's what I look for. Where are the high paying jobs going to move to? And the second thing would be, where are jobs in general moving to? So the reason Atlanta is, is so, so popular is there's a ton of companies that are moving there because it is so much cheaper to run a business. And then people need somewhere to live. And so you get all these investors that dump their money into, man, I've been to Atlanta a couple of times. I've been on CNN, like you guys mentioned, and that's where we record. Every time I go, there's new multifamily apartments everywhere. In that, I mean, you can't drive around without seeing 50 Nothing cranes. but cranes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, everywhere. And, and Austin looks very similar. Like there's a lot of cities where you see that. In general, that's the Southeast right now. You know, so that's the area that I want to be because that's where people are all moving to. So one of the biggest difficulties, right, in long distance landlording, long distance real estate is building a team, is having the people on the ground who can carry out kind of your vision for buying properties. And so Matt and I, we, we've never gotten into that. We buy, we've bought locally. We, we really own and manage the stuff that we have in a really close vicinity to where we live. So how would you... Let's say you're talking to, to Matt and I and you're trying to convince us to start investing in other markets. What would you say are the, the first steps, the first things for us to do to build that team to kind of help us achieve that goal? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about this concept I really believe in that rock stars know rock stars. So there's this principle that I, that I go by that people that are really good at what they do they want to be around other people that are really good at what they do. So like when Tiger Woods was dominating golf, his best friend was Roger Federer, a Swedish tennis player that had nothing to do with Tiger Woods other than the fact that Roger Federer was dominating tennis. They just, neither one of them were losing. And that that created a bond between them where they became friends. You know, Michael Jordan was friends with the other all-stars. He wasn't necessarily friends with the bench players on his own team. And, and we see that principle all throughout successful people. And we also see it on the other end of the spectrum, working as a cop, the guys that were in jail, they're not hanging out with rock stars, right? They're looking for people at kind of the bottom of the barrel of society because they make them feel more comfortable about the fact that they're not doing very well. And that's who they, they like to associate with. So once I realized that, that like birds of a feather flock together, however you want to say it, what I knew is that if I could become friends with a rock star, I could get into their inner circle. 
So the first thing I do is I look for a top producing rock star real estate agent and convince them that they should work with me. Now, most people make the mistake of approaching an agent like, well, there's going to be you and five other ones. We'll see who's the best, you know, and a rock star would never put up with that ever. You know, the hot girl at the bar who's got everybody approaching her isn't going to like, oh, I'm going to compete for you, guy. You know, if that's the way you approach her, she's like, I don't care. I've got 50 other guys that I can talk to instead. And that's how it is with top producing agents as well. So you got to bring your A game to convince that agent to work with you. But if you can get them to, you're going to get access to all their rock star friends. They know the best lenders. They know the best contractors. They know the best property managers. They know the best handymen. They are the people who know the people that you need. And from there, you just slowly start to expand. You get a great agent, tells you about a great property manager. The property manager knows a great contractor, a great handyman. You got that person on your team. You ask all three of them, who's the best lender that I could use? Well, they know because they all work with investors. So they have to have investor-friendly lenders in order to close deals. And that, to me, is the best way I've found to build a team. So basically, it sounds like what you're saying is that it's a domino effect of a certain sort. You find the one awesome rock star, and they kind of help connect you to the other awesome people you need to know. Yes, 100%. But the first step in that domino thing is not to find the rock star. It's to be a rock star so that when you find them, they'll work with you. David, you've told folks to double down on what you're good at and hire out stuff that you're not good at. Do you mind sharing like some personal examples? Like what are those things for you? Like earlier you mentioned <laughs> uh, like managing properties. That doesn't sound yeah. like that's your thing. What are some of those other things for you? And, and instead, what are you focusing on? Dude, it's that there are so many things that are not my thing. That's why I laughed. Like, (laughs) I really just like almost everything is not my thing. There's a lot I'm not good at. My best trait is I'm humble enough to just say I suck it a lot. So I think that's why I've been so good at the businesses I've done is I I don't have enough pride that I'm trying to convince myself I can do it all. So I am terrible at being organized. I like the, the thrill of the hunt. I like to take down the property. I don't mind the scary hard stuff, the negotiating, the conflict, the how am I going to fix this problem? The minute I've taken that thing down, all the little paper cuts, like calling to turn the utilities on, scheduling a call with a contractor to listen to him tell me what he did, all of that stuff that really is the easy part, I just poke my eye out with a pen. I can't stand it, right? I just I don't want to do it at all. So the first thing I have to do is to like create a, a checklist of all the stuff that has to be, get done and assign almost all of it to somebody else who likes administrative organizational type things. And are these people typically that you have on your payroll that are they work for David Green and 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 you're basically like listen, you're doing all this crummy work that I'm not into, but you know what? It's because you're you're on my team because you're good at it. Yeah, but see the, the thing that I didn't realize until I did this for a while is that crummy work is what they think is like the most fun part. That's all they want to do, right? They are terrified of being the one to make the decision to put the money into the deal to to deal with the problem when it comes up. They don't want to make a mistake. They love the comfort that comes from all I have to do is call the water company and put on the water. All I have to do is ask the property manager if the people showed up with the stuff yet. Like they like doing that. So once I saw that, I got a lot more confidence in like leveraging stuff off. So anything that has to do with asset management, I don't want to do it. Deal with it. I don't even want to put like the stuff into a spreadsheet to see who paid their rent this month. I have somebody else that does that. <laughs> and he just comes and tells me, here's all the people that didn't pay. And when I see like what didn't happen, I'm happy to come up with a creative solution to figure it out. But don't ask me to call someone and tell them what it is. Now I'm irritated again. He's got to go call those people and say, here's what David said. This is what he wants to be done. So I would just encourage everybody who's here. Like, There's not a business in the world that if it's profitable, you can't pay somebody else to do the parts you don't like. 
Yeah, I think, that, I think that's great advice, dude. All right, so we got one final question for you here. I, I want to know, how would you recommend folks that are listening to evaluate whether or not they should get into real estate investing in general? Is it for everyone? And if it's not, how do people know that it's not for them? If you're the type of person who just needs a quick fix, you just the, you're high off of the excitement of like day trading, okay? Real estate investing is not for you. This is a get-rich-slow game. This is like planting a seed watering it in the beginning, getting it to grow, and then just hiring someone else to come and water and put fertilizer around that seed until it becomes a tree. And you don't get to actually benefit from it until that tree is mature and it's producing fruit that you get to eat or sell or whatever you want to do. Chop down part of the tree, use firewood, let it grow back, however you want to handle that. It's not for the people that need immediate gratification at all. So that's, a, that's the first person I would say it's not for for you. It's also not for people that need a high degree of control and certainty over what they do. Like I just I don't know what's going to happen. Hurricane Dorian just came through Florida. I've got like 20 properties there and everybody's like, "Oh my god, what are you going to do?" I'm not. I'm going to wait and see what happens and then figure out if I should make an insurance claim or if I should just dump money into it. What I did was put a bunch of money away in reserve so that if this happened I didn't freak out. So I'm not going to freak out. But I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when I'm going to have an eviction. I don't know if someone's going to die in the house. I don't know if the tenant's going to like lose their job. So if you have to operate in a state of no, like engineers have a really hard time with real estate investing because they like to control the environment around <laughs> I them. I totally all. see that. Yeah, right. I mean, try to work with one of those guys helping them buy a house. They just they're, they're <laughs> it's nuts because they just want to account for everything that could go wrong. And, and all the questions, control it. all the spreadsheets, too many spreadsheets, probably. Yeah. Yes, it's different. It's more like poker. You don't know what cards you're going to get, but when you get the good cards, you play them. When you don't get good cards, you don't play it. And you learn how to play the cards you get better. And the longer you do this, that like it's why the same poker players always end up at the winner's table. It's not luck. But they don't know what cards they're going to get. They don't know what cards the opponent has either. All you know is the part you can see. You just do the best you can with that. And then you let inflation do its job and make you look like a genius 30 years later when your $38,000 house is worth $400,000. It's very clear that we've been talking to a real estate rock star here today, man. We really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today. Where can folks find you if they want to learn more about whether it be you know, the Burr strategy, whether it be just learning more about how to invest in real estate? Where can folks find you online? That's awesome, man. I run a blog, greenincome.com. Green spelled like my name with an E at the end of green, where I post articles I've written. Every time I'm interviewed on a podcast like this one or a radio show, I, I put that up on the website so people can listen to it if they want to hear more of me. I'm on biggerpockets.com. That's really like a, an amazing resource if people want to learn about real estate investing in general. It's all free. There's a forum. You can ask any questions you want, read other people's questions, read blog articles, listen to our podcast. But if they want to communicate with me directly, like they they have a, you know, want to buy or sell a house or they want to get connected with an agent in a market that they want to go into or something, Instagram is by far the best way to get a hold of me. If you send me a message on Instagram, there's a very good chance I'm going to get back to you. As long as you send it prudently, don't send like one of those seven page messages <laughs> asking me to analyze a deal for someone I don't know type of a thing. But my Instagram handle is David Green 24. And that's pretty okay. much what it is for all social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, anything, Snapchat, I think even same stuff. Yeah. If you're going to try to holler at David, be cool, be chill. Uh, send a nice, sweet message. Yeah, there you go. It's the same. You know, Brandon and I actually talk about that a lot, like the right way to approach somebody to get what you want. 
And there's been a couple of people that got their feathers ruffled a little bit. Like they just have an attitude that someone should just reply to them just because. But life doesn't work that way. It's like I was saying, if you want to get the best agent to work with you, you got to approach them the right way. If you want to get a radio station to play your show, you got to approach them the right way. If you want to get any kind of success from a successful person, there's like a, a nuance and a skill to learning how to communicate and, and how to bring value first. And that comes up in real estate investing all the time. All the time. You want that contractor to work for you. You got to figure out how to talk to them. Yeah, completely, dude. I completely agree. Well, David, seriously, man, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, and, and I learned a lot today. I really uh, appreciated talking to you. You know what? I'm going to consider long distance real estate investing now. So yeah, we really appreciate you joining us on the show today. Yeah. Thanks again, David. Thanks, guys. I had a blast. All right, Matt, that was a great conversation with David Green. I really appreciated getting a little peek behind the curtain of how he got started, even just being a waiter and what he learned there and how that influenced him becoming a real estate investor. But I want to know, Matt, what was your big takeaway from this episode? Yeah, Joel, my big takeaway was David's response uh, when you were asking him about tips for negotiating. He compared it to a poker hand. And he said that all too often, we are, we've, you know, we've got a bad hand. I think he said a pair of fours. And so often, we are trying to make that pair of fours work. right? Like We're trying to win the hand with a pair of fours. And that's just not going to be the case. And what that takes is a knowledge of the market and knowing if a property is that pair of fours or if you've got a full house or pocket aces, right? Like something where you know that you've got a great chance of, of winning the hand. And he just said all too often that we are just trying to force that hand, right? We find a property that we love. We're emotionally tied to it. He talked a lot about emotions. I really like that. I think emotions play a huge role in the money mistakes that we make a lot of times, right? But when you're emotionally tied to a house, a lot of times it doesn't matter what the numbers say because you're not looking at the numbers. You're not looking at the actual facts. You're, you're going off of your gut. You're going off of your fears. And instead, we need to look at the actual numbers. We need to, to run the analysis and figure out what the return on investment is going to be for that property. And if the hand's not good, we need to know when to fold and just kind of walk away from that deal altogether. There's some song that says, you got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. You got to know when to walk away. I don't know. I think that's how it goes. Some sort of country it's, it's Western a country song. country song. I don't listen to country. Is that Garth Brooks? You're more into like the alt Americana. Yeah, so. I like that. But I don't... I could Honestly, I couldn't tell you who sang that song. And I probably should be able to because it's quite popular. I just remember uh, Boot Scoop Boogie Achy, back in the day. Achy Bricky Heart. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for you, man, what was your big takeaway? Yeah, I think my big takeaway was that long distance real estate investing is is viable. It's something that can make a lot of sense for a lot of people. For me and my family, we've been investing locally. It's easy to keep an eye on things, but we've also been keeping it small time. And we've had this question from a lot of our listeners uh, who live in LA, who live in Denver, who live in parts of the country where buying a home is prohibitively expensive. And so real estate investing just feels completely out of reach. And I think for them, long distance real estate investing can make a lot of sense. It takes becoming a rock star, like David said, and then finding rock star players in the market where you're looking to buy. And so while it scares me a little bit, right? It's not something I've ever done. I feel like it's something that is now in play in my mind that I could actually maybe buy a property in another state from where I live. And so yeah, I just appreciate his philosophy, his thoughts on that. Because obviously, he's not going to be buying 10 homes a year in San Francisco. Almost nobody can do that, right? It's so expensive there. But yeah, so that was my big takeaway. Long distance real estate investing can work. Yeah, you got to consider that, man. Sweet. All right, Matt, let's get back to the beer that we had on the show today. We had a beer called The Explorer by Archetype Brewing. It was a tropical IPA. What were your thoughts? Man, tropical indeed. Uh, I feel like there was virtually no hot bitterness. Like it was super smooth, super sweet, right? It almost drank like juice, <laughs> which is kind of dangerous when it comes to a beer. But uh, yeah, it was just super juicy. It was very wet and sweet. 
I guess the kind of beer that you would expect maybe in a tropical climate. Uh, but I really, really dug this one, man. We're going to have another beer by Archetype later this week. But uh, yeah, what were your thoughts on The Explorer? Well, it's a great name, right? <laughs> Makes me think of uh, Jurassic Park because that's when the Explorers came out, right? Like that was the that was the dawn of the SUV. Oh, the you Ford Explorer. Okay. See, I'm thinking like Vasco da Gama. I'm like, thinking like Christopher like a Columbus. a real Explorer. Yeah, yeah. Someone <laughs> who like discovered a country or something via boat. But no, this was a great beer. It truly did have like tropical notes throughout. And it was also just incredibly bright and refreshing. You're right. These hops didn't have a ton of bitterness. It really was more of a bright and fresh vibe. And so, yeah, I really Ooh. enjoyed this beer, man. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, fresh. I felt like this was canned recently. It's drinking like a fresh hop. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So we'll have another beer from Archetype on Wednesday's episode. Looking forward to that one. But that's going to do it for this episode. So for anybody who wants show notes for this episode, links to some of David Green's books, his podcast, all those other things, you can find that in our show notes on our website, howtomoney.com. And if you haven't already, we would love if you were a subscriber to this podcast. Uh, just hit that subscribe button. And while you're there, if you could rate and review us, we would really appreciate that as well. So Joel, that's going to be it, man. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.